now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift Vieira's Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Sweep, S-W-E-E-P. Sleep, work, eating, emotional expressions of yourself in play. Regression isn't always a pathologically bad thing. You've got to do one thing at a time and stay with it. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. This is Dr. Phil, as you know, since you tuned in to Dr. Phil and fill in the blanks. And it is 2022, so we have a new year. A lot of people are wondering if we're really in a lot different place than we were this time last year. I'll let you decide that for yourself. This is a time where everybody makes New Year's resolutions. And look, that can be fun. I understand. And if you do it for fun, that's great. But if you do it like most people do, it never amounts to much. And if you follow me at all, you know I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions because they don't amount to much. By about the middle of February, 80-85% of the people have abandoned their New Year's resolutions because you make them emotionally. You know, we're all fired up on New Year's. We're going to get out there. We're going to you know, lose weight, get a new job, go back to school, whatever. But then when the emotions fade, eh, you know, emotions are fickle, so we don't really do much about it. Well, I don't want to talk to you about New Year's resolutions. If you want to make some, if you want to set some goals, I've got some podcasts out there that talk to you about how to set goals, how to make a goal that's measurable, how to identify the steps to get to it, how to set up a timeline, accountability, and actually turn a goal into something you can attain. Don't want to talk about that today. What I want to talk about is not what you set up to do, but how you approach it. And boy, oh boy, have I brought in a heavyweight to help me do this, because I want to introduce to this conversation Dr. Charles Sophie. Now, Dr. Sophie is somebody that I admire greatly. He is a board-certified psychiatrist. You've seen him on the Dr. Phil show a number of times. Let me tell you why he's there a number of times. He's there because he is damn good at what he does. He's a board-certified psychiatrist. He's a former medical director of the Department of Child and Family Services here in L.A., which, by the way, he did for a number of years until he retired from there. It was the largest agency of its type in the entire United States. And as medical director, he worked with families of every sort, dealing with kids and helping them find the best path to succeed in this life. He's board certified in three clinical specialties, actually, adult psychiatry, child and adolescent psychiatry, and family practice. He got his medical degree from Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, and he's been in practice for more than 35 years. 
So you've seen him on my show. You see him on Today's Show, The View, CNN, MSNBC, Dateline. You know, you've seen him a lot of different places. He's an author. And as a product of me twisting his arm and staying after him, I've finally gotten him to agree to write another book, which will be out sometime later this year or early next year. I know he's been working on it because I've been reading some of the manuscript as he's gone along. So welcome, Dr. Sophie. Guys, I want you, if you haven't already, be sure that you click to subscribe. And I'm going to ask you what I've been asking you before, and that is call at least one person that you care about and ask them to listen to today's podcast. And I'm going to tell you why. I'm getting ready with Dr. Charles Sophie to talk about three things that can dramatically change your productivity and your level of success in 2022. So if there's somebody you care about, you care about their level of success, don't be selfish. Share this with them because these are evidence-based things that you can do behaviorally, mentally, emotionally to enhance your productivity in 2022. So call at least one person and get them to listen to today's podcast. It'll be a gift that you give them, and it's free. Thanks. Back to fill in the blanks. This is your second time to be on fill in the blanks, right? Yes, it is. Thank you. Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you. I don't know how many times you've been on, Dr. Phil. Do you? Two. Like, not enough for me. Yeah, well, certainly not enough for us, I can tell you for sure, because we get so much great feedback whenever you're on the show because you're straight, you tell things where people can understand, and you really demystify a lot about psychotropic medications and things that people really don't understand. So thank you for all you do for us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to be able to do it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, you know, you just heard what I was saying to folks. I, I Listen, there are so many articles written, so many people talking about New Year's resolutions and I don't want to talk about those things, but I do want to talk about how people go about what they go about in this year of 2022. Being in quarantine has had a big impact on folks mentally, emotionally, physically. And for the most part, and I won't say totally, but for the most part, it has not been a positive impact. Would you agree? I would agree 100%. And I think it's because people didn't take this time that they really could have been isolated and more you know, within their own life and take inventory and shape things up. They fell apart and they were dealing with demons inside that they didn't have the tools to deal with. And either they used outside tools that have now led them to bad places or they just have been stuck and now they're afraid to even leave their home. So yeah, I would agree. Well, do you think people have, because of quarantine, and as a result, people's orbit, their world has gotten smaller because, of course, being at home, even working from home, yeah. people have become, it seems to me, they've stayed closer to home base. They've been out there less. And I think what people used to take for granted of just normal activities seems to be intimidating now when they think about getting back out there for some people. Yes. Have you seen more anxiety, stress, depression in people in your practice and in the hospital? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think instead of seeing this as a positive experience where your orbit, as you say, is smaller, it's more manageable. So now's the time to really reorganize, reprioritize and be able to move forward with things. But people are not doing that. They're, they're falling apart from the overwhelming anxiety of not having everyday structure that they're used to. And they're not getting up on their feet and they're falling apart. And they are afraid to leave their homes now. They're, they're overwhelmed with their, their anxiety. And it's now spilling down to their children who don't want to leave home and go to school. Everybody was used to that little nest, but they didn't use it for the best options. You know, I've thought about this a lot, and I've talked to people about it a lot as well. And I want to say to everybody that's listening, if we're describing you or somebody you know, I want to really encourage people to be patient with yourselves. Because I understand nobody asked for this, and this is certainly nothing I've ever experienced in my life, and I've been around a while, and I've never experienced anything like this. So I hope as we talk about this, I don't want people to think that I'm being critical or judgmental as opposed to just being descriptive, because I'm one of those people that believes you can't change what you don't acknowledge. So I'm just wanting to acknowledge the fact that we had this quarantine forced on us, whether you believe that it was the right thing to do or not, it is the reality of what happened. So there has been fallout from it. Let's be patient with ourselves about that. And we need to experience some forgiveness for ourselves if we're not behaving the way we wish we should. Our children, if they're seeming a little timid and maybe they've regressed some, And by regression, I mean maybe they're functioning the way they were at a little bit younger age, one or two years younger than what they were before. You're seeing habits that maybe you saw when they were a grade or two younger are starting to pop back up. Well, look, let's be patient. We can close this gap if we'll just have some forgiveness and some patience in our hearts. But at the same time, let's require ourselves and our children and each other to step up and get back out there and do the things that we need to do. I do think we can have some forgiveness and be patient with ourselves because there has been some regression with adults and with children alike. Is that a fair term to say regression? Yeah, I mean, yes, I think it is very fair because people have gone backwards and it's not necessarily meaning it's a bad thing. As we know, a lot of psychological theories show that regression back to a safer place emotionally is where people go when they're in a right like a troubled spot so regression isn't always a pathologically bad thing it's sometimes a safety mechanism for your brain to then regroup and move forward hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price priceline ladies and gentlemen what are you doing what do you mean i'm making just keep it simple i'm making the promo just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros, two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice.
Brav bros. Good job. You know, I said I didn't want to talk about resolutions. What I wanted to talk about was the way people do what they do. And here's one of the things that I want to talk about, and that is I think everybody approaches life with a certain attitude. And when we talk about optimism or happiness, I think a lot of people think that when you have success, that we get happy about that. We're always happy when we succeed. And of course, that's true. I think people should be happy when they succeed. But I've been looking at a lot of research. And, you know, doctor, I know you and I have both looked at this because we've looked at it together. I want to tell the listeners and viewers what we're talking about. There was a huge study done. This was meta-analysis, and it was done of 225 academic studies. And what we're talking about is some researchers. One was Sonia Libomirsky, and that's L-Y-U-B-O-M-I-R-S-K-I, so I don't butcher the name. And we'll put that on the website so you can read some of these things yourself. But Laiu Bermirsky, King, and Denye found strong evidence that there was a real causality between life satisfaction and success, meaning that if you get happy, if you have a good attitude of approach, if you have some optimism, that it leads to more success in your undertakings. Now, they focused on business outcomes, but there's other research that suggests across the board that if you have a good attitude in the things that you approach, that it precedes success, not just vice versa, that happier people, more optimistic people enjoy more success. It's not just genetics. It's not just environment that there's neuroplasticity in the brain where it rewires itself and we tend to be more successful. Comment on that a little bit. Well, I mean, I agree with that. And I think that we also have to let people know that despite the fact that they've started out maybe with a rough beginning or a traumatic life experience as a young child or domestic violence or whatever <clears throat> it was, abuse of some sort, you can still overcome that and change and shift your attitude and your happiness and your neuroplasticity. You just need to really address some of those issues and not to plug my new book, but that's what my book is basically telling people. You can redo whatever there is that you don't like in life. You're not stuck with whatever. You can redo it. And yes, neuroplasticity works. People get happy when they are happier. They're more successful. And all of that can shift. It's up to you. It's your attitude. Well, I think that's a big thing that I want to emphasize here. And there's an author named Sean Ocker. A-C-H-O-R, that wrote a book called Big Potential. And he talks about this a lot, and I highly recommend the book. I've read it. It's really good. He talks about this study, actually, as part of that book. And he talks about what I've talked about for years, and that is that when you come into any relationship, what you bring with you either contaminates or contributes to that relationship. All of your learning history, all of your attitude, all of your beliefs, all of the things that you have learned and define who you are, it either contributes to or contaminates that relationship. And that's true in life in general. What we've seen is that if you develop new habits, now 
you know, maybe you've been someone that's kind of a naysayer. Maybe you see a snake under every rock. Maybe you're one of those people that comes in just expecting bad things to happen and the self-fulfilling prophecy takes place. Well, the flip side of that is true because the brain is very adaptable, and that's why we call it neuroplasticity. If you develop new habits, the brain actually rewires itself. And so how do you do this? If you say, okay, you know, Dr. Phil, you got me. I, I tend to have a little bit of a negative attitude. I'm not Pollyanna. I'm the other way. I'm a naysayer. So how do I change that? Well, you behave your way to success. And there are some ways you can do that behaviorally. And this is what I'm talking about. I want to be very specific about what you can do on a day-to-day basis. For example, if you resolve every day that you are going to acknowledge some good things in your life. I used to have an exercise where I had people make a 65-item blessing list. They just had to sit down and write out 65 things that they considered to be blessings in their lives. And it just forced them to acknowledge the good things. And it's important that when you acknowledge good things in your life that you write them down. If you do that every day, if every day for three weeks you just write down five things that you acknowledge are positives in your life, it changes the way you go through this world. Let's say, for example, you write down five things that you're grateful for. Maybe you resolve that every day you're going to find three people in your life that you compliment. Maybe they're coworkers. Maybe they're parents at the school where your children go to school. Maybe it's your spouse, your partner, someone. But sometime during the day, pick three. Three people that you're going to compliment. You're going to find something positive to say where you're engaging people in a positive way. I'm telling you, your brain will start rewiring itself where you have a more positive attitude in your life. And I'm wanting people to start 2022 with some of these positive habits because it leads to a higher degree of success. And that actually happens biochemically. Doctor, talk about that a little bit because I've always said for every thought we have, there's a physiological correlate. When people think positive things, physical things happen inside their body. Absolutely. Like just take the example of riding on a roller coaster. When your brain is going up through that, you're scared and you get physical feelings associated with that. When you're fearful of something, you get physical feelings associated with the fear that's shifting the brain chemicals that are allowing you to feel and know you're fearful. So you feel it and you know it. It's your brain and your body. Always. They're always in sync. So if you're going to smile and write down five things that you're grateful for or three people you're going to compliment and you see the smile on their face after you compliment them, that then translates into something physical as well as something chemical in your brain. So it goes without saying they're hand in hand. Yeah, they are hand in hand. And, you know, the thing that I worry about sometimes is what I call face validity. If something lacks face validity, that means that somebody will look at a solution you've given them. And if it lacks face validity, they go, nah, 
I don't believe that's really going to be effective because just on its face, it just doesn't look valid. And like oftentimes, for example, you can tell people, it would really help you if you took 10 minutes twice a day to go through some relaxation exercises. That would help you immensely in your disease management. They'll poo-poo that. They'll go, yeah, yeah, you know, give me a prescription. Give me some big machine to use or something because just relaxing for 10 minutes twice a day, eh, that lacks face validity. It doesn't seem significant enough for me to invest a lot of faith in. And so they'll toss it when, in fact, it could be one of the most powerful things they could do. But because it doesn't on its face seem very powerful, they will dismiss it. And what I want to make sure we do in this conversation we're having, Dr. Sophie, is for people to understand we're going to talk about three different categories during this conversation that you and I are having that can have a profound effect on how productive, how intellectually efficient people are going into 2022. This can be the difference between whether they are successful or not successful, whether they come out on top or they're an also-ran. This could be one of the most important podcasts that we do all year long if people give this face validity and understand it. Because we're saying here that if you go at things with a positive attitude, I'm not saying being some pie-in-the-sky Pollyanna, but with a positive, realistic attitude, it can be outcome determinative. A hundred percent, I agree. Yes. One of the things that there's a lot of research on is being socially active. And I'm talking about receiving social support and giving social support. For example, let's say you are a career person. If you are socially active, you support coworkers, meaning you engage them. Maybe you finished your work and they've got things going on yet that they haven't finished, and you step across the aisle and say, hey, can I help in some way? Is there something I can do? You engage people. You become an active supporter That is so important that it actually correlates with longevity as much as does exercise. Just the fact that you become socially active, socially engaged, has as much to do with how long you live as whether or not you exercise. And low social support has as much to do With longevity, it can be as bad as having high blood pressure. That's how important this is. If you have a positive attitude and you engage other people, one of the ways this developing these habits is to become a socially engaged person, then it has a profound effect even physically, not just on your attitude, but physically. And I've heard you talk about the fact that This correlates with happiness that people experience while they're under stress. 
because they don't feel alone. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because if you use the example you just gave of reaching across the aisle to your coworker, the amount of happiness that comes for everybody and the amount of positive outcomes for everybody, both people in that interaction is amazing. You're giving and that's a positive thing. You feel good because you're useful. You're helping somebody. You see the smile and the relief on their face and the gratitude. They give back to you something. It's an interchange of exchange that is positive on every level. And that brings happiness. Happiness brings longevity. Longevity brings success. It all feeds on itself. Yeah, it's circular, isn't it? It all goes together. And there's a study that I read in the literature, and it was also in Sean's book, Big Potential, where he talked about social support during stress. I think this was in Sean's book as well. I know I read the study that there's a 0.71 correlation with happiness if you have social support when you're in high stress situations because you don't feel alone. So there's a 0.71 correlation with stress. Now, is that significant? Well, let me put that in context for you. There's a 0.37 correlation between smoking and cancer. A 0.37 correlation between smoking and cancer and a 0.71 correlation between social support and happiness when you're going through a high-stress situation. That's how important it is that you be socially active and socially engaged. It's 100% right. I mean, because what you're doing is giving your brain literally a chemical break from the negative stress, and you're shooting in some positivity and some chemical shifts in the opposite direction. You're going to feel better physically and emotionally with long-term outcomes. Yeah, now that's important for your physical health. It's important for your mental health. But let me tell you, it pays off in other ways as well. And I'm talking not only about receiving social support, but I'm talking about what Dr. Sophie mentioned about giving social support. I want you to say some more about that. Why is giving so important for people's happiness and relieving stress and pressure for people to give to others? Well, because in general, people feel if they don't feel they're useful and that they have a role in life or their own life or the role of somebody else's life, you don't have usefulness. You don't have a purpose, really. And that's the core of a depression. And that's the core of poor self-esteem, self-value, all that stuff. So if you're able to give to someone, even if it's a handshake, much less a hug or help them with their work, that's a positive effect on so many levels for yourself because you feel useful at the end of the day. And useful equals purpose equals happiness equals self-esteem. I'm so glad you said that because, look, we learn about ourselves the same way we learn about other people, right? We watch what we do. That's the way we learn about somebody that works with us, for example. If we watch them every day, they're the first one there. They unlock the door. They turn on the lights. They're always there. They're always getting everything going. And we know if we work 200 days in a row and they're there 200 days first, then we make an attribution to them. We say this person is dependable, they're reliable, 
They're resourceful. We make those attributions to them based on what we observe them do. That's how we make attributions to ourselves. And that's what you're talking about. If you observe yourself being useful in other people's lives, then you make the attribution to yourself, I have value. People value me. They trust me. They look to me. And so my self-worth goes up because I observe myself being of value to other people. And so our self-worth goes up and we feel better about our existence, about that existential question of what's the point? Why are we going through this life? Well, we're going through the life because we're impacting other people. It matters if we're not here. Exactly. That's why people that are depressed tend to isolate themselves and withdraw from society and themselves and their life. And the real treatment is to jump back into it. Now, let me tell you how this pays off. You know, initiators are 10 times more likely to be engaged at work. So if you're somebody that reaches across the aisle, you're someone that engages other mothers at school or other dads in the neighborhood or whatever, you're 10 times more likely to be engaged for them to interact with you. And if we're talking about a work situation, people that are socially active are 40% more likely to be promoted. Doesn't matter what level, whether you're an entry-level employee, whether you're a mid-level employee, or whether you're an executive, you're 40% more likely to be promoted if you are a socially engaging individual. You have a 40, that's almost half. You're 40% more likely to get a promotion. So that's why I'm saying that what we're talking about here can have a big impact on how your 2020 goes. It lowers your stress levels. It lowers your cortisol. It lowers everything that goes with stress. And stress doesn't always have to be negative. You know, we talk about stress sometimes as though it's always a negative thing, but it can be a motivator. It's the steel that sharpens your blade. You know, very seldom, and I'm not saying never, but very seldom do we grow during our time off. (laughs) Because you'd be surprised how worthless I can get. You give me a few days off. I'm like a lizard on a rock. I can just kind of hang out. But it's when we're in those times that stretch us, that try us, that require us to rise to the challenge, those are the times that we grow, that we manage situations. And stress can be negative, and oftentimes it is. It creates problems for us mentally, physically, emotionally, and otherwise. But it can also be a motivator. And if you think you're in a real high-stress situation, choose a few of those things that you can control. Your job, your relationship, finances, maybe your overall health. Don't focus on the things you can't control, like the weather or other people, 
or the stock market or whatever. Don't focus on stressors that you don't have any input to. Focus on the ones you do have input to and see what you can do to ratchet those things down some so you, again, observe yourself having some mastery over what it is that is creating stress in your life and learn that you have the ability to change those things. People learn what they can control and what they can't by watching what they do. And we do have the ability to handle the stress in our lives. We can de-stress, correct? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, one of the big things I tell people is to use a mnemonic that I put together called SWEEP. And those are the five things that they can control and should control in their life and the life of their children, from their sleep to the way they work, to what they're eating, how they deal with their emotions, what they do for fun, and how they interact in an intimate relationship or whatever they happen to do with their romantic life. But those areas are controllable, and those will bring you a, a mastery feeling that you have control, but also happiness because you feel you can control them, plus you can control them to make you happy. All right, well, let's go through your mnemonic. The first one, S, is sleep. Yes. The quality and quantity of sleep. You fall asleep. You stay asleep. Is it good sleep when you're waking up? How important is sleep? Well, it's vital. It's, it's our energy. It's our way for our body and our brain to recharge. And if it's not good quality sleep and you're not down long enough and you're not down in a good quality way, you're not going to wake up in a good quality way. You're going to feel exhausted before your day even begins. And then you have no tolerance for life and you feel dejected. You're not going to want to reach across the aisle. You're not going to want somebody to give you a handshake. You're just going to isolate yourself. And it's the beginning of a shutdown. Sweep. S-W-E-E-P. Sleep, work, eating, emotional expressions of yourself, and play. Okay. And the last one is play. Play. Yes. Hobbies. And that's really important, right? Play is so important for people to set aside time yes. to get out of harness and do something they really enjoy. Right. And they should be doing things with others as well as by themselves because hobbies are a great self-soothing tool to have when you're in a time of stress to soothe yourself. And they're fun. And they should be things that you can do alone as well. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's really important. And we'll list that one out on the site for everybody as well. So in summary, what we're talking about here is that you go into this year actively monitoring and managing your attitude. And really ask yourself, are you a negative person? Are you fatalistic? Do you go into something deciding, you know, this isn't going to work out. I, you know, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to be a victim. Things aren't going to be the way I want them to be. And if that's the way you look at things, that's probably how it's going to turn out. Now, I'm not asking you to be some Pollyanna. I'm just saying, if you have a positive attitude, and if you behave in a positive way, particularly socially engaging other people, and you change your internal dialogue, the things that you're saying to yourself, the chance of you succeeding in whatever you undertake, personal life, relationship-wise, career-wise, your chance of succeeding is going to go up dramatically. So you've got to decide what your attitude of approach is, 
and what you're going to do to change it. And I gave you three or four things you can do to behave your way to success and give your brain a chance to rewire itself by having positive habits. And when you do the habits, your brain will rewire itself. Now, I want to shift gears. I want to talk about what I think is a huge myth. This is a big one because if I can get you to stop doing what I'm getting ready to talk about, you can increase your productivity about 40%. Now, think about that. I don't know what your level of productivity was last year, but if you could increase it 40%, how much difference would that make in your life in terms of your relationship, your earnings, your quality of life? 40% is not nothing. That's a hell of a lot. So what is it I want you to quit doing? I want you to stop multitasking. Now, I've alluded to this before, but I want to take some time to talk about it. And what do I mean by multitasking? Well, one way to multitask is trying to do two things at once. That can be as simple as watching your favorite TV show while you're filling out some reports you have to do. It can be your kid watching TV while they're trying to do their homework or listening to music, or talking on the phone to a friend while they're doing their homework, doing two things simultaneously. Another way to multitask is to switch between tasks before either one of them's done. You're doing A and B, and you switch from A to B. Before A is done, you switch to B. Before B is done, you switch back to A. Before A is done, you switch back to B. Or three, is doing two or more things in rapid succession where you just bang, 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 bang. You're going so fast from one thing to another that you never really get something wrapped up. Now, here's the reality. 98% of us do not multitask effectively. 98% of us do not multitask effectively. Actually, less than 2% of us are effective multitaskers. And I want you to assume that 2% ain't you. I want you to just assume you are not among the 2%. And research tells us that people hugely overestimate their ability to multitask. They think, oh, yeah, okay, I got you. Multitasking is not for everybody, but I have the ability to do it. I can keep a lot of balls in the air. That's what mothers do. I mean, mothers keep a no, no. You don't do it effectively. And this is such a myth in our society that job descriptions actually call for it. They say, you know, you got to have this training, you got to have this credential, you got to have this experience, you have to have good people skills, and you have to be good at multitasking. 
No, you don't, because nobody's good at multitasking. 98% of the people aren't good at multitasking. Who's writing these job descriptions? Where did they go to school? You shouldn't be asking people on job descriptions if they're good at multitasking as a requirement to get the job because that lets out 98% of the people. What is it, Dr. Sophie, that makes people think that's the best way to go through life is trying to keep all 10 balls in the air at one time instead of handling one ball, then putting it down and picking up number two? Well, I think it's several things. I mean, one is I think the myth that people think if they're moving in a quick manner, as you said, and they're doing one thing after another, they're not even checking to see if they've effectively task completed, as you said, and they're going backwards and forwards and just spinning between tasks that don't get completed. Besides moving at that high rate of speed, they're getting a false sense of completion and they're really not completing. And then they end up in burnout because they're exhausted from everything. And at the end of the day, you're burned out with nothing really completed. And so I think it's a myth that they think because they're moving fast, they're accomplishing, but really at the end of the day, you're not. Do you think that people do this because it makes them feel important, because it makes them feel like, oh, I'm just so busy. I have so much to do. I have so many things going on. I must be the most important person in the room. Well, I I think it's that. And I also think it gives people, as we talked about earlier, a sense of mastery and control over something. And they think if the more they can control, the more they do, the more they can control. But in the end of the day, you're not controlling anything because nothing's being done except you're standing and running in place. Well, you are running in place because, look, in order for us to complete a task, we have to set a goal, we have to identify the information we need to achieve it, we have to disregard irrelevant distractions, and then we have to move forward towards completion. Now, that's a four-step process. Right. And if you're trying to do that on five different things, come on. Exactly. There ain't no way in hell that you've set five goals, identified the information needed to achieve it, locked out all the irrelevant distractions for all five of those different things you're pursuing, and identified the necessary action plan to get to each one and are effectively executing it. There's no way you can do that because I can tell you right now the other four are already interfering with the one that you're trying to work on in the moment. Right. So just by definition, you're not doing it. Exactly. Plus, you're assuming there's not going to be any barrier that comes up that derails you from even completing one of them, much less all five of them. So you can't predict that nothing's going to happen either. Of course not. And let me tell you how the brain works here. And, you know, this is my area. This is where I've focus most of my training and what I focused on in my practice is how the brain actually works. And this involves multitasking requires the brain to refocus. And that costs time. There are task switch cost. And there's goal shifting So you're deciding to do one thing instead of the other. And when you're changing from the rules from one previous task to the rules of the new task, the brain's having to accommodate to all this. And it's having to refocus. And all that time you're spent refocusing, 
reduces productivity 40%. Right. So if you've got somebody out there that says, oh, well, they're really great. They, they're great at multitasking. They can run the sales floor, and they're in here doing this and doing that, doing it. No, 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 no. They're reducing productivity 40%. And if you are living under the myth of multitasking, then you're working with less than all of your mental capacity by 40%. Think about this. Somebody with an average IQ, let's say 100 points, if you reduce that productivity by 40%, they're now functioning with an IQ of 60. Is that what you want? Is that who you want taking care of your children? Is that who you want representing you with your customers? Is that who you want driving your kids to school? If you've got a babysitter and they're driving your kids to school, but they're multitasking, that's why they say don't text and drive. That's a clear example of multitasking. You cannot drive an automobile at 3,000 pounds, 50 miles an hour, while you're looking for the T on your keyboard, while you're reading a text. That's multitasking. Errors go up. Mistakes go up. Things just don't go smoothly. Think about Texting and driving, that is the perfect example of multitasking and why it doesn't work. Right. I mean, multitasking does not come without a high cost and then also low productivity. So it's a lose-lose on all levels. But people don't think that because it doesn't feel that way to them. Well, so let me tell you what research tells us who tends to multitask. These tend to be approach-oriented reward-focused people. They consider the possible benefits of multitasking, and they're attracted to the higher potential rewards they think it will get them. They're high sensation seekers. They need constant stimulation. They think, oh, there's a lot of variety if I'm a multitasker. They're people that are convinced they're part of the 2%. And like I said, let's disagree. We ain't part of that 2%. I'm not. You're not. And there are people that tend to have trouble focusing. They have trouble sticking with something and seeing it through to the end. Think about talking to your children. Maybe you got your teenager in there and you're wanting to talk to them about things going on at the house or what you expect from them if they go out with friends. And while you're talking to them, they've got their cell phone in their hand and they're texting or they're reading an email or they're on their laptop playing a video game. How much do you think they're paying attention to you? And how much retention do you think they're going to have if they're doing all that while you're talking to them. In addition to being terribly disrespectful, there's no way in hell that they're absorbing, encoding, and retaining everything that you're telling them. And neither are you if you go into a meeting 
and you're sitting there reading a text or answering something, oh, just hang on, excuse me, I got, let me answer this, let me answer this, let me answer this. No, no, no. That doesn't work. And I don't know why we have gotten into this habit of thinking that we can keep 10 balls in the air at one time because we simply cannot, and it reduces your productivity 40%. And if somebody had come to you and said, I can increase your cognitive functioning 40%, I can increase your productivity 40%, would you like to do that? You would say, of course. Well, that's what we're telling you right now. Make a list and do one thing at a time. And you'll feel so much better and outcomes are going to be so much higher. The only way to do it. So let me tell you how to do this. You know, first off, if we're talking about in your home or we're talking about in your work environment, be a role model. Set up boundaries. Create a culture in your home, in your marriage, in your workplace of being in the moment 100%. You've got to set up that culture. As I say, whether it's at home or at work, set up the culture of say, look, this is going to be a short meeting and requirement. I'm turning my cell phone off. You're turning your cell phone off. This meeting can last for 30 minutes, everybody with their cell phone on, or it can last 10 minutes, nobody with their cell phone on. So we're all going to leave our cell phones in the other room or we're going to turn them off and we're going to be present in the moment 100% while we're here. And this requires mindfulness. It really does. We are a clickbait society where we go online and look up something and there's clickbait down there and we click on it. And we go down the rabbit hole. And we're 17 minutes into the mission and realize we haven't looked up the recipe. We haven't answered the text from our daughter. We're 17 minutes into the mission and we haven't done a damn thing we got ready to do. You've got to decide you are going to stop multitasking. Either record the TV show and watch it later or watch it now and do your work later, but you cannot do both. And if you tell yourself you can, you just simply don't have the mental bandwidth to do it. I don't, you don't, we don't. We just need to be very clear about that. And this is one of those things that, like having a good attitude of approach, you just have to decide, hey, this may not have a lot of face validity, but I'm going to do it in 2022. I'm going to practice mindfulness. I'm going to come present in the moment. I'm going to focus on what I'm doing. And when you do, I promise you, you're going to achieve what is called a state of flow. And the state of flow is when you get into a subject enough that you reach your peak efficiency on that subject matter, and that generally takes at least 15 minutes. For your brain to get focused, for your brain to get alive, aligned, for everything to be shut out, and you get into peak efficiency of problem solving, of whatever it is is required to deal with that subject matter, 
it takes 15 minutes to come into full focus and gather everything you need to gather in order to properly deal with that subject matter. And if you're switching back and forth, you start over again at ground zero every time you come back to the task. If you want to get into a state of flow, you've got to do one thing at a time and stay with it. There is no substitute. Now, Dr. Sophie, what do we need to say to people for them to get how important it is to let their brain function the way it works? Well, I think it's important for people to understand that they want to use labels and they want to say maybe they have ADD or they have ADHD, which are all, you know, components of impulsivity, poor, you know, distractibility, low concentration, lack of task completion, all of the things we're talking about. It doesn't matter if it's a label. It doesn't necessarily mean medicine has to work because even the patients that I treat with medicine still need to do all of the things that we're talking about. You have to have self-discipline. You have to train your brain. You have to do it because otherwise it is going to be scattered all over the place with low productivity. It's, a, it's something we all have to accept about ourselves, no matter what, whether that lack of focus is driven by anxiety or a frontal lobe dysregulation, or it's just who you are. You still have to get a handle on it. And the only way to get a handle on it is to do the things we're talking about. Yeah. And let me say one more thing about this. You may have heard me talk about this in the past. And what I haven't talked about is this. Make a priority list. And this is probably going to change day to day. Set up your priorities, one through five, one through seven, whatever it is. And if at any time during the day you find yourself working on something other than number one, stop what you're doing and go back to number one, or it shouldn't be number one. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. It's not just because that's in the number one slot, and therefore you should focus on it. We have a certain degree of bandwidth reserve. If I come back to my desk at night getting ready to work on the show that I'm going to do tomorrow, and I get back here and answer 15 emails and write out five or six and read two articles and then say, okay, that's it. Got it. Enough's enough. I'm going to get down to what I came back here to do. That's foolish on my part because I have depleted my cognitive reserves by the time I get to the reason I came back here to begin with. What I should do is come back here and begin with my number one priority. And once that's done, then take some time to do the little nit noise, the emails, the clickbaits, the articles, whatever. But do the most important thing while you have the biggest reserve of bandwidth available because you're draining it away with all of those things you do before you get to what you sat down to do. Right. And Dr. Phil, it's also important to understand for people that at the end of the day, 
low productivity, task distraction, lack of task completion, multitasking, all of that leads to poor self-esteem because you don't feel good about yourself or your purpose if you're not producing and you're not producing as best as you can. I think that's very important. Again, you're watching yourself and if you're letting yourself get chipped, chipped, chipped away with the miscellany of this clickbait world, then we never are going to be at peak efficiency. And we want to observe ourselves being at peak efficiency. Now, I said there were three things that we were going to talk about that were going to greatly enhance your functioning in 2022. I said I didn't care what it was you were going to work on. I just wanted to be sure that whatever it was, that you were going to do it with peak efficiency. And the third thing that Dr. Sophie and I want to talk about is what I call mind clutter. And when I say mind clutter, I mean how much distraction is in your environment internally and externally. Your physical environment, your appointment book, your inbox, all the unfinished emotional business you've got in your head. There's something called the clutter effect, and it affects your life satisfaction, your physical health, your cognitive efficiency. And Dr. Sophie, isn't it true that the brain, particularly the executive function in the neocortex of the brain, likes order. It likes everything in its place and a place for everything. And anything that disrupts that creates anxiety. Yes. And the higher rate of multitasking that's done, the higher rate of clutter there is and vice versa. And they're inversely, inversely proportional to each other. So one feeds off the other and both are going to be detrimental to you as a human being overall. Well, the degree of visual distraction in people's lives, if they come home and the kitchen is cluttered, cabinet doors can't be closed because of receipts and bills hanging out, it increases cognitive overload. It increases cortisol levels, which is kind of like a low level of the fight-or-flight response. Maybe you've lived in the same house for 30 years, okay? So in 30 years, look, we accumulate things. And there are things of value. I understand that. Robert and I have been married for 45 years, and across 45 years, we've accumulated things. There's no question about it. But if that creates clutter and chaos, it changes your life world. It changes the way your mind experiences your environment. And it can actually create physical pain. It can create low subjective well-being. Even those that have a cluttered, chaotic environment are 77% more likely to be overweight because they have a chaotic environment. They have a chaotic diet. They have chaotic eating patterns. 
And with hoarders, which is the extreme level of clutter and mind clutter, if you do what's called an fMRI, a functional MRI, there are parts of their brain that are activated the same as if somebody hits their thumb with a hammer. It's painful for them to live in that chaos and live in that clutter. Now, that's at the extreme. That's with a hoarder, Dr. Sophie. These are people that you see these people and you think, oh, my God, how can they live this way? Why would they want that? They don't want it. It's painful to them to live that way. Very painful. It's psychologically painful, yes. It's like, you know, I tell people oftentimes that kind of clutter, walking into your home at the end of the day, you think you're at home and it's going to be a safe nice, enjoyable place. And if you walk into a cluttered kitchen, as you say, it's as well as you throwing everything in your hands up in the air. That's what your brain is doing when it hits a room like that. It becomes increasingly upside down. It scrambles itself, basically, and it's chaos all the time. And that puts you then into a psychological and a physical crisis mode, which is really not going to be good for productivity. Well, two researchers at Cornell, Cutting and Armstrong, did a research project where they said, People that live in this kind of cluttered environment are less efficient at visual processing. And by extension, you know, this hurts relationships because they're so distracted by the environment that they don't read the room very well. <laughs> they don't read their partner's face very well. They don't pick up on subtle clues because they get lost in a sea of minutiae. So relationships get damaged. They have a much poorer mental health. They have less efficient thinking. So what I'm telling you is if you're in a situation like this, look around you right now. If you're listening to Dr. Sophie and I at home, Take a minute and look around. What's the environment look like around you? Is it orderly? Is it tranquil? Or is it cluttered, overcrowded, and chaotic? And if it's cluttered, overcrowded, and chaotic... This is hurting you. It can hurt you mentally, emotionally, and cognitively. Your brain likes order. And you won't function nearly as well in that kind of out-of-control environment as you would if everything was ordered and not crowded where you had the ability to scan the room and it was kind of peaceful and open spaces. And it doesn't matter if you live in a small apartment or a big house. The question is, what's the density and how much clutter is there? Now, Dr. Sophie, let's talk about uncluttering the mind for a minute. You know, you gave us your mnemonic. Right. 
How important is it for people to unclutter their mind to get that quality sleep you were talking about? Well, I think it's a very important thing that people just never really learn. And, and most people have, should have learned it as a child, as an infant, where they learn to self-soothe in their crib and put themselves to sleep or however they were put to sleep. And those are the beginnings and the seedlings of self-soothing. And that should translate as you grow through your life, learning how to self-soothe yourself. That's why in my mnemonic, I put play and hobbies under there because you've got to learn how to soothe yourself at different times to unclutter your mind and unravel it so that it can be at peace. And if you don't know how to do that for yourself, that's the biggest gift you can give yourself to learn how to self-soothe. If somebody's going to bed at night or they wake up in the middle of the night and their mind is racing because they've got unfinished emotional business, because they've got these things racing around in their head, how important is it to write things down, even in the middle of the night, where they get them on a piece of paper so they don't feel like they have to think about them all night long? Does that help? A hundred percent. Just the very fact of dictating it into your phone, getting it out of your mind, in your body, into a physical place that's outside of you is just the act of doing that is a hundred percent helpful, much less actually turning your brain down then because you feel you've gotten control over those issues because they're now contained somewhere else and you know you're going to deal with them then. And that's very self-soothing. So all the self-soothing tools you can have are the better. That's a toolbox that needs to be at your fingertips. Because I can tell you, for me, sometimes I'll wake up and I don't know if it's in a dream or my mind is racing or whatever, but I'll have something in my head or maybe multiple things in my head and I worry that I'm going to forget them. Right. Now, if they're so important, then why would I forget them? But that's in my mind. And I have a pad next to my bed. I find if I jot something down where I don't have to worry about forgetting them, then I give myself permission to say, okay, I don't have to keep thinking about this. I don't have to repeat it over and over in my head. Then it really helps me let go of it and go right to sleep. Now, you say dictate it into your phone. I don't think Robin would want me dictating in the middle of the night. So that's why I write it down. <laughs> She'd sit up and say, what the hell are you doing? Exactly. Then you have another Zip it, buddy. Right. But yes, I mean, getting it, the physical act of getting it out of you and into a place that you feel is contained to bring your attention to it the next day allows you the permission to say, I can let go. And that's self-soothing. And that's what we need to be able to do. My boys still tease me today. Because I used to tell them when they were in middle school and stuff, I'd say, all right, look, you're going to do your homework. You need a big, clean space without any distractions. You need good light and plenty of paper and, you know, then sit down and do it. And they used to think, oh, come on with this. What are you doing therapy on me here? They do great impressions of me telling them that. But I would come in and they're finishing a problem down in a quarter inch on the bottom of the page or something. I say, come on, paper's cheap, but get a clean desk, get good light, don't have clutter, and 
you'll get through with your homework in a third the time if you'll just get rid of all the distractions, get a good space to work and do this. And they became adherents to it. They decided, hey, you know what? I'm through with this in a third the time before I did it, before I got a clean space and no clutter and no distraction. And they became believers because they wanted out of there as fast as they could get. And I'm telling you, your cognitive efficiency goes up if you will declutter your mind. So we've talked about three things. We've talked about a great attitude and really using social engagement. That is just so important. And I hope everybody will really embrace that because I think it's critically important. We've talked about the myth of multitasking. Get rid of that. Just simply don't do it. You can increase your productivity 40%. And we've talked about cleaning up the clutter in your mind and your environment, and it can make a huge difference in your trip through 2022. I truly hope people will say, look, I'm going to take this week. I'm going to really work on that and get that in a position. Now, repeat your mnemonic one last time for us. Sweep. Sweep. S-W-E-E-P. Sleep. Work. For children at school. Eating. Emotional expressions of yourself. Intimate relationships and play, which is hobbies and things you do with others. Right. And we will have that on the website where people can look at it and grab it. Now, I have a few questions for you here right at the end. Dr. Sophie... If you were king of the forest, what would your top three priorities be going forward into 2022 for this world? What would you want to do? I would probably, it's a great question. I would probably want people to really regulate their life. And what I would tell them to do is follow that mnemonic as best as they can, because those five areas are critical to existence for themselves as individuals, their children, their families, their homes. The second thing I would tell people to do is do a better balance when they're living through life, making decisions so that they are 50% coming from your heart and 50% from your head, not to have it on a balance. Because if you have too illogical, too logical of a basis, you're not going to incorporate enough emotion. And if you have too much emotion, you're not going to have enough logic. I think that's a critical thing for people to have a 50-50 balance. And I think the third thing I would say is make sure that you have a path that you're following that's leading to you feeling you have a purpose. So many people don't have a path and then don't have a purpose and there's no value in their life and they don't value themselves. And it's sad because they're productive, good human beings who could have a better path and a better outcome. Well, boy, I love that. I love that third one, having a path to a purpose. That's critically important to people's self-worth. All right. If you could erase one thing that happened in the last year, what would it be? What I would erase is probably the quarantine, because I think, unfortunately, it had so many negative impacts on so many people, especially children, that it has set them back. But hopefully, we can overcome that with the kinds of advice and the kinds of podcasts that you're doing. If there was one thing you could ensure that would happen in the next year, one thing that you could just guarantee this is going to happen, what would it be? You could have better self-esteem, and that's a guarantee, if you just do the things that you're supposed to be doing which translates to a better life. Yeah. 
better life experience. Yes. All right. Dr. Sophie, it's been an honor and a privilege to have you discuss these three areas with me. It's just been critically important, and I really hope everybody embraces these things. And if they have questions to clarify these things, they'll get them to us, and I'm going to want to answer them. I hope you'll pop back on to help answer the questions that people have if they have them. I'm always here. Thank you. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing you on Dr. Phil very soon. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Doctor, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye. Okay, guys, that's it. We'll uh, be talking to you next week. And again, there will be notes on the website. And let's use these three things to make 2022 the most productive year you've had. I'll talk to you soon.